You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 125. Yeah, Jake, we can now drive around the city of Houston. I know, it's, it's good. I mean, it seems like it, traffic is still terrible. Okay, so like, there's no getting around that from here, from 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 coming in Tomball to going in town, it is absolutely awful. Getting home is like is still what would normally be like an hour long trip is about still two hours, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah if you just join us and you're wondering why we're saying about that, uh, Houston has the wor- had just finished the worst flooding in the history of Texas, and literally parts of our I- infrastructure, parts of our interstates and beltways were underwater for for weeks, and most of that's dried out now. Um, we uh, have actually raised some money to help those unfortunate uh, people out there, and we're getting ready to shut that thing down. But you know, we want to thank all of our audience out there who contributed money, their hard-earned money, to help the people here in Houston due to hurricanes. So, to you know, to all of our listeners out there that chipped in, we really appreciate everything you did. It's going to help a bunch of people that can really use it. And speaking of people that can really use it, uh, hats off to on-the-road sponsors. So Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. If you're in that upstream world, if you're in that landman's world, you need to check them out. They're literally the landman's virtual office. And then Lee Heck Harrison, I actually talked to them today, Jake. Um, we're going to be interviewing some of their people for uh, the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Show. But Lee Heck Harrison are global experts in talent management. Over three quarters of, t- of the current Fortune 500 oil and gas companies use Lee Heck and Harrison for leadership and workforce transformation. So if you're out there dealing with that sort of stuff, please check out our travel sponsors. They allow us to go to all the events, um, which means that we get to meet more of you, our listeners out there. And Jake, I'll let you jump into the news articles. All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, the first article is from Oil Price. Uh, it's talking about the $10 trillion resource that North Korea can't tap. Um, and while this may not... I wanted to bring this up just because North Korea has obviously been in the news uh, just about every day for like the last, what, two or three months with uh, Kim Jong-un uh, threatening to... <laughs> uh, threatening to blow up everybody, pretty much. Right. And uh, I, I saw that President Trump called him Rocket Boy at the UN... <laughs> I don't know, it was a summit or convention or whatever the other It was day. the meeting at the Union is the first time that Trump spoke at the Union, UN yeah, and he that was, called him Rocket Boy. I thought that was pretty funny. So Rocket Boy is, you know, trying to blow up everybody. And uh, so I thought I thought this was kind of relevant. Um, so they may not have proved petroleum reserves, but it is estimated that they have a ton of minerals, over 200 different types of minerals, um, rare earth minerals that is valued at approximately $10 trillion. $10 trillion with a T. That is a lot of money. It is a um, lot of money. So it's like coal, it's iron ore, it's zinc, it's copper, graphite, gold, silver, uh, mag- magnesite, um, and a couple others. Um, and so they're saying estimates, you know, high end 10 trillion, low end 6 trillion. That's still a lot. Um, and so uh, last month, do you want to talk about the ban? Yeah, so what's happening is various company companies, listen to me, various countries uh, have implemented um, tariffs and trade bans uh, both in and out of North Korea because of, of quite frankly, their very unfriendly uh, dealings with the rest of the world. And they keep tightening the noose and tightening the noose and tightening the noose. And I really thought that Kim Jong was crazy, you know, threatening the U.S., um, firing missiles over Japan, who has a long history of, of owning North Korea. 
And the more I look at it, you know what I think is going on, Jake? I think they're desperate. I mean, it, it, it has decimated their economy. Um, if, if you get a Google satellite shot of North and South Korea at night, there's almost no electric lights in North Korea because they don't have electricity. They don't have light bulbs, right? Where South Korea is full of uh, electrical lights at night. And so now I'm starting to think that maybe these trade sanctions are actually doing what they're supposed to do. And, you know, the old military guy in me wants to go in and just, you know, command and control. But I think what we're doing is actually working. So China actually implemented a coal ban, which cut off a huge revenue generator for for um for North Korea. So um, the other thing that's going on, a lot of people don't understand, is that because it is a monarchy, um, the Kim Jong over there is having them do all kinds of stuff just to try to make money. Things like um, identity fraud around the world, right? So he, he's financing some very smart people over there that have access to the tools they need to steal people's identity to help generate revenue to keep the government running. So, um, you know, when you get to the point where you're doing identity theft as a government just to keep pay your bills, you're you're at the end of your your, your string. So we're going to see what's ha- going to happen with, with them Um the unfortunately, the people really of North Korea, the ones that suffer the most, um, they're doing without food and common goods, you know, soap and, and uh, fuels and even things like candles. You know, they just can't get their hands on because of all the trade sanctions. But like I said, I think they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I think eventually it's going to force North Korea to the negotiation table. The flip side of that is if I'm wrong. And it really is crazy. Uh, you're going to see some type of limited engagement. It's going to be led by the U.S. It's going to be very uh, strategic. They're going to take out their uh, command centers. And then we're going to be in another huge mess. And that's going to really play havoc in the economy in Asia Pacific, which is what we're trying not to do. Uh, China doesn't want that to happen. No matter what, how bad Jap- Japan is, they don't want that to happen. So we'll keep an eye on this. Um, it's getting close to go one way or the other. Yeah, I know a lot of people on the edge of their seats. I'm not really worried. Um, I know a lot of people are. Um, but I 100% uh, believe our military is. Oh, are you kidding me? I'm not taking care of it. <laughs> it's not even going to be a fair fight. I, you know, I think we should, if we do it, we should send in our third string guys. We don't need the Green Beret going there. Let the Coasties go in there and, and, and get some practice. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, because when you look at their parade, and nothing gets the Coast Guard guys. You're going to have a lot of pissed off Coasties right then. <laughs> nothing gets the Coast Guard. I love you guys. Y'all do a great job. And actually, y'all do stuff that I wouldn't want to have to do, which is the constantly worried about drug smuggling on every little boat that you pull over. But um, when you look at North Korea's military parades, and and Jake, I don't know if you caught this, you know, you and I are both uh, Marines, but they have World War II equipment, World War II trucks, and they have anti-aircraft guns mounted on anti-artillery. They have World War II trucks with both anti-aircraft guns and anti-artillery um, howitzers mounted on the same truck, and it's like you can't do that in a battlefield. So it's all for show. Um, I, you know, so I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not from a military point of view. They, they're not even close to, uh, you know, even threatening anybody. Good luck, Kim John. <laughs> <laughs> all right, up next. Uh, you and I were both excited about this article. We were talking about it before we uh, hopped on the mic. Um, you know, we've talked about how service companies have really struggled during this downturn over the past couple of years uh, and how they're really been struggling to break even. And if they are, you know, making a profit, it's at a very, very slim margin. Um, so now Schlumberger uh, is taking a gamble. And as you know, Schlumberger is the world's largest oil field services firm. Um, and they're deciding to take an ownership stake in upstream oil and gas production. So Schlumberger is trying to become an operator uh, in addition to becoming a service company. Yes, so this is huge, right? I want you to listen to what Jake just said. So Schlumberger has now taken money and bought joint ventures to become an operator. 
Now, what's genius about this is you're diversifying your revenue stream, right? You're mitigating the risk. So you can either, as Slumberjay, you can either break even on your oil and gas production and then use your own products and services and make your margins there, or you can break even on selling or using your your products and services uh, for the on the operation side to make money as an operator. Um, the the real secret to this is is that Slumberjay have the brain power and and I think they do. do. Do they have the the expertise that they need to make wise joint venture decisions with other operators around the world? And when you think how old Slumberjay is and how long they've been around, how much they've operated. I mean, if you don't know if you're part of midstream or downstream, you don't understand what this is. In the upstream world, for the most part, the operators, right, the Chevrons and the Petrobras's and the Exxons of the world, they identify the field, they put up the money, but other people do most of the work. That's the oil field service companies. That's the Halliburton's and the Slumberjays and the Baker Hughes's and the Weatherford's and so on and so on. There's thousands of them out there. So Slumberjay has years of experience doing everything in the oil field that you need to do. Everything from when you first start from sputting a, a well to actually uh, going and to completing the well, to going into production, all the parts and tools and processes, they, this is what they do. This is what companies like BP and Shell hire them to do. So they have a lot of expertise in how to run an oil site profitably because that's what they get paid to do by the, the major operators. Now, the other part of this is capital. Upstream oil and gas is capital intensive. It is not uncommon for a single lease to be hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's hundreds of millions of dollars that you write a check for with no money coming in. And you, you hope that you did your science right and you make some money you get that hundreds of million dollars back you make some money on top of that well slumberjay has enough cash to actually do this so um interesting approach i can't believe i didn't think of this earlier i, I mean it's it seems so simple but i think it's genius and i think it's going to shake up the service companies because now slumberjay has different margins to mitigate any risk whether that's risk of um uh, inflation in the service companies, right? So if, if there's not enough pumps and parts to go around, well, now Slumberjay can take its pumps and parts and give it to itself. Or the opposite. What if there's uh, deflation and, you know, operators are, are beating everybody up on price and you have to take low margin deals? Well, now Slumberjay controls that deal because it's the half owner of the operation side. So I, I think this is, is genius. Um, and I think it's going to lead to a change in strategy for the entire awful service industry. Um, you know, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, I keep telling you this is a perfect storm that things are going to change like they've never changed change before here's a prime example that's actually happening right now i think slumberjay is definitely going to pull it off i think it's going to become a powerhouse um and i think it's probably going to beat expectations as well um but i guess it, it does it is good to talk also about about the uh, potential downsides as well you know with their traditional business model they complete a well they get paid either way right, right. Uh, whether the well is actually profitable um it's safe uh, it's predictable but as owner and operator you know, they are going to be exposing themselves to a lot more risk if a product doesn't turn out well. Um, but the flip side of that is if it does work out well, they're going to make a lot more money than they normally would. Well, they're you know, also so going to higher pull, risk, higher reward. They're also going to pull way ahead of, they're already ahead of everybody, but they're also going to pull way ahead of the Halliburton's and the Weatherford's. Now, the Baker Hughes GE is interesting because I am firmly convinced they're, they're positioning themselves as a technology player. And the service part of the business they now own is just to provide the data for the technology part. So it's going to be interesting to watch. It's two radically different approaches by Baker Hughes GE and by Slumberjay. Um, let's give it some time. Let's see which one made the right choice. Maybe both of them. So there's also a lot of speculation that Slumberjay will now be kind of competing with its own clients. What do you think about that? It will be competing with its own clients, right? Yeah. Now, right now, Slumberjay is just doing joint ventures. And 
Schlumberger has a long history. Schlumberger loves to buy stuff. They've done that since I've known them. They have a long history. Before they buy something, they test it. So, you know, they, they bought Cameron, but before they, which is a subsea um, manufacturer, and, and onshore, but mostly subsea. But before they bought Cameron, they had a joint venture, right? It was called One Subsea. That joint venture with Schlumberger and Cameron was Schlumberger testing the waters before they bought Cameron. I think this is the exact same thing. You're seeing Schlumberger do joint ventures with several big knocks around the world right now. But it's what this article is talking about. I think they're just testing the waters. I think they could do it a couple times. And if it makes financial sense, you can actually see them come out as an operator to compete with the, you know, maybe not the Exxons of the world and the shells, but compete with the Anadarkos and the Oxys of the world. So let's keep an eye on this. This is interesting times. Yeah, they're saying that they definitely could compete with some of the largest shell producers in Texas, kind of right out the gate. Yep. That's pretty impressive. Yep. So good on you, Schlumberger. All right, up next. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, Saudi Aramco has been eyeing uh, different markets for its potential IPO. Um, as of right now, they're kind of leaning towards London, but uh, the New York Stock Exchange is not uh, off the table. Um, so they're deciding this year, you know, which, which stock market they actually want to go to. Um, and if that's the case, if they're leaning towards that, we've talked about this before, they have to start actually releasing uh, audited financial figures by early 2018. That's not really far away. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting, Jake. So we talked about this about being the biggest IPO in history. And that number that we talked about was $1 trillion. Do you house. know that? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yes. There's some analysts out there saying this might be a $2 trillion IPO. That's insane. crazy. So there's a bunch of political stuff, the geopolitical stuff is going on here kind of behind the scenes. Um, one is, and if you listen to me before, you've, you know, you've heard me say this, but um, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which is the biggest member of OPEC that owns Saudi Aramco, they need different revenue streams. Their old model of just selling crude in the global market and controlling prices is slowly falling apart, and they know that. So one of the things they could do is, is if they go IPO, then they get this big influx of cash. The other thing is they can use that influx of cash not only to keep their social programs running so their people won't radicalize and overthrow the government, but they also can use it to diversify. So they're building uh, LNG export facilities. They're building petrochemical plants. Um, now, one of the things they're doing is, is that if they go IPO, because there's fuel subsidies involved in Saudi Arabia, that Saudi Arabia might have to raise their local or their domestic gasoline prices, right, to bring them up to what's even with international prices. Now, that is going to be an increase of about 80% gasoline prices right so imagine jake you know i would have to run premium in my car and i'm paying about 250 a gallon imagine if that 250 a gallon went to four dollars a gallon that's how big a jump they're making right i would be pissed well let me tell you the people in saudi arabia are going to be pissed because for, forever the government subsidized fuel prices fuel is dirt cheap over there but it's because the government eats a lot of the cost of actually doing it so um that's gonna cause unrest and that's something that the monarchy in saudi arabia doesn't want to have happen it needs to keep its people happy so they're they're on a balancing act right now right they lean too far one way it's gonna tip over they lean too far the other way it's gonna fall over as well um the financial disclosures will be interesting i'm actually can't wait to get my hands on that because i want to do a deep dive um into what has actually been happening over there. Um, a lot of the money that Saudi Aramco makes goes to stuff that nobody knows about, funding different groups, supporting different political movements all over the world, all to help Saudi Arabia and OPEC. So once you have to start divulging that, people can start following the paper trail, and then all of a sudden, especially if you're public on any of the major exchanges, whether it's New York or London, there's rules that you have to follow, and you can't do that sort of stuff anymore. So let's see what happens with this IPO. I just cannot believe that it's up to $2 trillion. Um, but, you know, uh, I, this is, this is going to be the deal of, of 
history when this thing goes through. It's going to be really, really awesome to see. So we'll see how, we'll see what the valuation's at next month. <laughs> All right, up next, uh, BP cuts North Sea production cost uh, in half. I guess it was the CEO, Bob Dudley, uh, was saying that his company has cut production cost uh, by half in uh, most of their locations in the North Sea. Uh, most of the most of the focus is on standardization, simplification, and uh, discipline on cost. And you know, this has kind of been something that we've t- been talking about: how it's not necessarily been uh, economical uh, to you know to operate offshore. You know, in, in, in this downturn. Yeah, it's and and this is exactly what they've done. So, uh, anybody in our industry, especially in upstream and the service companies, know the money that gets wasted just for silly decisions, right? Um, every tree is different, every pipe is different, every rig is different, and that's just inefficiencies. Um, the, the way they train people, right? If, if you go on a shell rig as, as a service company, the stuff you have to do for shell is different what you have to do for Exxon, which is different what you have to do for, for Chevron, and that just adds cost. So they've cleaned a lot of this stuff up. The industry as a whole is doing this, and we're moving that route, that road, which is really good. The cool thing is the, the cost for BP in most of their fields in North Sea to break even was a little bit over $30 a barrel, say $33, $34 a barrel. They've dropped it down to $15 a barrel. That's a significant improvement. That means that $15 a barrel, they break even. Um, now, the thing about North Sea is that Brett crude that they produce is very unique, and Europe has a big appetite for it. So if they can keep the cost down, they can keep the North Sea environment operating. Now, the only thing about the North Sea is that it's traditional reservoirs, which means it means basically it's a big bucket of oil under the ground, or in this case, under the North Sea. And so as you deplete that oil, you start driving cost up because you have to start spending more and more money to get the oil out of ground, out of the ground. Things like artificial lift, gas lift, that sort of stuff. So as we move forward in time, these reservoirs, as they get more and more depleted, will, will take more effort to get the oil out of the ground. But can technology keep pace with that to keep the break-even price around $15 a barrel? If we can, North Sea's in a, in a good place. Not a great place, in a good place. I did think it was interesting, Jake, if you read the whole article, that um, when they talk about their... Um, their um, renewable fuel work and they and BP is heavily into this. Uh, they they all are. BP is really heavily into that. Um, um, they in U.S. They have a uh, trying to commercialize biobutanol, which is basically a replacement for butane um, made by algae, if I remember right. Um, but if you actually look at the ca- the carbon footprint of that technology now, it's actually higher. So you produce more carbon on the renewable side than you do if you just make it from from crude oil <laughs> or from natural gas. So that's what BP is trying to. Uh, work on the other thing is they're real heavy into ethanol in brazil um and i hear a lot of people talk about ethanol or biofuels um the renewable fuel stand here in the u.s the one thing that everybody misses is there's a step um and jake i know you're not a big drinker but i am um and so i understand how you make ethanol right Um, that's what all your spirits are um in brazil they make it from sugarcane so what they do is they uh, pull the sugar out of the sugar cane, they ferment it, and they distill it to ethanol, right? Three steps. We don't do that in the U.S. Our, 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 our environment is different. We're not tropical, right? So we make most of our ethanol from corn, which adds another step. You can't ferment corn. So they have to take the corn, dry it out, and they sprout it, right? That sprouting then releases, turns the, the um, carbs to sugar, and then you can ferment that sugar and you distill it. So that extra step in a three-step process in, our, in the U.S. is a four-step, which drives the cost up. So BP's heavy invested ethanol in Brazil because it makes financial sense over there. Ethanol does not make financial sense here in the U.S. It's subsidized by the government. The only people that benefit from it are the corn farmers that are 
uh, paid to grow the corn for ethanol. Um, if you take away that government subsidy, it wouldn't stand up on its own. But anyway, good stuff for BP driving efficiencies in the North Sea. And, and you're seeing all the major operators do this all over the world. And it's something we've needed for a long time. And it took this perfect storm to actually get them to do it. So it's good, good for everybody. So speaking of the North Sea, the next article is also um, talking about that as well. Um, this article is from the Scotsman. Uh, I saw it all over the internet uh, this past week. Um, and they're claiming that oil and gas uh, resources in the North Sea will run out in 10 years. Um, yeah, they're crazy. I don't know if the, I don't know if the research... Uh, I'm seeing here University of uh, Edinburgh. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure if that's actually who did the research or not. Yeah, yeah. so... so the, the, the lead professor is Professor Roy Thomas at the University School of Geosciences is saying that the UK urgently needs to build a, a bold energy transition plan. Um, Germany tried this, right? Go check out, um, I think it's Uberwind in Germany and, and look at the financials on that. The thing is, as humans, we have always had a mix in our energy. So humans started off using biofuels, right? We start off burning wood and as we move forward in time and we had a bigger and bigger demand for energy, we had to use more energy dense sources. So there's a place for solar, solar there's a place for hydro, there's a place for nuclear, um, there's a place for wind. It, it, and, and as we go through time, that mix will change. Um, you know, here in Europe, we use less and less oil and gas for fuel and we use more of it to make stuff. But the numbers, I went back and did some research on this real quick. The numbers don't add up to me. Um, uh, when you get down to 10, you know, they're saying that the their offshore fields only have 10% of recoverable oil and gas remaining. That's not true, right? Every year with new technologies, we can tap in more and more. There is about 70% of the oil and gas still there in the UK. Now, you can't recover all of it yet, but every year we come up with new recovery technologies. And then they also talk about how fracking is not economically viable in the UK. That's because it's illegal. <laughs> So that makes it why it's not economically viable. There, there are shell um, formations in Europe um, that are economically viable once the infrastructure gets bit, built to actually bring in the equipment that's needed and bring out the gas and oil. Now, whether Europe tends to go down that route, I, I don't know. France has already banned fracking. Uh, they're trying to do a little bit of it in the UK, and they've caught a lot of resistance. And, and that's fine, right? It's um, here in the U.S. and other parts of the world, we're happy to frack, take that crude natural gas, and sell it to the rest of Europe, uh, which just benefits Europe, and it un unchains Russia's chokehold on Europe to provide energy. So, um, you know, being here, being from Texas and being involved in the oil and gas industry, I kind of hope they don't start fracking in Europe. It just makes, <laughs> makes more money and more prosperity for us over here. So uh, next, uh, let's talk a little bit about some mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Patterson UTI... Uh, is buying out uh, MS Energy for $215 million. Uh, they're purchasing them from Denim Capital and NGP Energy Capital Management on a debt-free basis for about 8.8 .8 million shares of common stock. $75 million of that is going to be uh, in all cash. Yeah, so this is, this is Patterson uh, UTI turning itself um, into an oil fill service company not just a pumping company, um, which is what they were before. So this is somebody that has a good solid position, good financials, taking advantage of this downturn and buying stuff like, uh, you know, downhole motors, directional surveyors, directional drilling, wireline steering, and just adding that to their portfolio. This is a perfect example. And we've talked about this before of a good solid company that's run very well, um, that was able to use the cash on hand to start picking up 
other companies for literally pennies on the dollar. And that sounds kind of bad, but really the companies they pick up, now they have an infusion of cash. Now they have some good management. So those people, maybe not all of them, those people get to keep their jobs, right? They keep, get, keep getting a paycheck. Whereas, whereas if Patterson didn't step in, the company probably would go out of business. So um, this will be interesting to watch. This is a new wave of, of what we see coming over the next 10 years or so of these smaller, very financially secure, very thought forward thinking leadership picking up bits and pieces and growing themselves into large service companies, which is only going to provide competition to the Halliburtons and the Baker Hughes and the Slumberjays of the world, which is going to keep prices low, which means that we can be okay profitable at $50, $40, $50 a barrel oil. So um, a good thing this is going to happen. You can see a whole bunch more of this. Um, you can see some more big, like big mergers and acquisitions in 2018 in the oil and gas industry, especially in upstream. So um, keep an eye on this, but I, I think this is a great move for, for everybody. Good job, Patterson UTI. I mean, they've been, they're a big service company now. $3.4 yeah. billion dollar oil field service company. Man. Yeah, and they start out with like four pump trucks. Man, that's awesome. All right, last article of the day. Uh, I want to put this one here. I want to see if there's any kind of like geopolitical implications because of this and kind of what your thoughts on that are. Um, so Russia's Rosneft is clinching a gas pipeline deal with the Rocks Kurdistan. Yeah, man, there's so many different moving parts here. I don't even know what to, to even say. So um, part of this is is the ability to get gas through Turkey to Europe. You know, as the U.S. is able to start shipping LNG, Russia seriously needs to both lower its cost and increase its capacity to deliver natural gas to Europe to hang on to that market share. Um, this new pipeline that that they're talking about um, is is huge. Um, they can handle up to 30 billion cubic meters of gas exports a year. It's a lot of freaking gas. Um, you know, that's like, I think, one-fifth or one-sixth of what they need to, to run Europe. That's huge. Um, and, and it's going to be online in 2020, which is not that far away. It's a couple of years down the road. But they also secured in this deal several fields to help support the gas that's needed to keep that gas flowing to Europe. So there's a bunch of moving pieces here. You know, Rosneft doesn't make bad decisions. Russia's in a really strange place, whereas in some ways um, we're in an economic battle with Russia, U.S. and Russia, both on, on producing oil and gas and, and grabbing market share in the rest of the world. Um, you're seeing a lot of geopolitical stuff going on that puts us against Russia. And what people don't understand, it's really economic. It's Russia trying to block and tackle us, and we're trying to block and tackle them uh, from an economic point of view. The reality is Russia and the U.S. need to be friends because if we can maintain our business relationship with Russia and divide up the market share evenly or however we want to do it that makes sense, we then take away more power from OPEC, which really only benefits Russia and the U.S. down the road. So, um, you know, our, our current administration is kind of all over the place with Russia. I mean, sometimes it looks like they're really supporting them. Sometimes they're not. Um, you know, we have people on both sides of our political dividing line that that don't like what's going on in Russia, that are a bunch of false accusations. Um, I got a good friend of mine that's actually a Scotsman that's been in Russia for 20 years. A big shout out to Rod. Um, and I talk to him probably once every month or two. And it's interesting, Jake, what we hear in our media and what he tells me never match up. So um, fake news. Yeah. And it's so it's hard because because of, of because of our news media's. Um, 
aptitude to want to tell stuff that gets a good read that drives sponsorship dollars and advertising dollars and not tell the truth. Combine that with Russia's where the government controls what comes out and you put those two together and you just you don't know what the reality is. Um, but this is a good deal for for Rosneft. Um, they were able to get this thing done. It's increase the supply of gas to Europe. So let's see what happens with this. I suspect that we're going to try to hurry up and anchor some some big LNG contracts, which then may make this not as economically viable a deal for Rosneft as they think it is today. But that's only if we can grab some more of that European market share with, with our LNG exports. Awesome. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed the news stories for the day. You want to move on? Do we have a uh, Red Wing winner this week? Heck yeah. So congratulations, Trevor Warren with Trinidad Drilling. He's operations manager. You have won this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. Hey, Jake, our winner from last week actually reached out to me and was so excited, wanted to know when he's getting his bag. And it's like, it's only been two days. <laughs> Give him a little <laughs> bit of time. Um, but if you want to be like Trevor and win one of these awesome offshore bags, it's really simple to do. We give away one a week, no purchase necessary. All you have to do is go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put in your information and we draw one lucky winner a week. And Jake, I just came back from a business trip from Tennessee and I accidentally found out something about our Red Wing offshore bag because you have one too. Oh, yeah. Do you know that it has backpack straps in it? Which one? The big bag or the small bag? The small one. Really? So that's what I did. So I get back from the airport. My Red Wing bag was upside down. I go, what's this zipper on the bottom? I open it, and there's straps. So you pull the straps out, and you hook them, and now you can wear it as a backpack. So our awesome Red Wing offshore bag just got more awesome because now we just, I've just figured out last week that you can wear it as a backpack if you need to. I guess you can call it a backpack. <laughs> backpack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you want your own backpack, go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. What's a regular, weekly rig count doing, Jake? We were at uh, 1,020, so we're pretty we're pretty stagnant. Uh, not really a whole lot of change, but you know that as we can be expected, uh, we're not taking any steps backwards. So yeah, we need 280 more rigs to come online before December, so I can be right. <laughs> well, permits are up 28 percent uh, than the previous month, so that's a good indicator. That is a good indicator. Um, a little talk about events on deck. So we have um, the. SPRE, which is Society for Petroleum Resource Economics. Um, they're actually doing their all-price outlook. Uh, they have been inviting us to this for over a year, and we've never been able to make it. We are finally going to make it. Um, so Paige Wilson and I are going to make it out there, and we're going to be guests. Um, we're going to uh, pay attention to what's going on, hear what they're talking about as far as the outlook, and, um, and report back later. Um, this is a good organization. If you're into the financial side of oil and gas, this is like a small networking group of just a bunch of people that totally geek out around that. Um, so if you want to go, it's um, Thursday, October 5th. Jacob put a link in the show notes. Um, it's dinner and drinks, and then the, their all-price outlook for 2018. So um, if you go, hit either me and Paige up on Twitter or whatever, and let us know you're there. We'd, we'd love to have you introduce yourself and just say hi. And then we have on um, October 9th and 10th, S-P-E-A-T-C-E, so Society of Petroleum Engineers Annual Technical Conference and Expo. This is on our must-attend event every year. If you want to learn about what's new in oil and gas, but you want to learn about it from the companies that actually do stuff in oil and gas versus companies from Silicon Valley that want to do stuff in oil and gas, this is the event to go to. Uh, we go to it every year. It's in uh, This year it's in San Antonio, Texas. I'm not sure which of the podcast gangs will be there. I know I'm going to be there. Um, we'll see. I think some uh, some other y'all are going to join us as well. If y'all go into this, hit us up on Twitter. Let us know because we'd love to have, come introduce ourselves. And I think we actually may record a podcast or two. So if you're a company that's attending as an exhibitor, definitely hit us 
us up. Maybe we can get you on the podcast. And then finally, to produce water management in the Rockies, um, this is if you're in that world about uh, infrastructure, um, you know, economics on water disposal, water treatment, uh, roadmaps to handle and improve water, uh, go check this out. Uh, we're not going to make this one. I actually wouldn't mind making this one because it's so uh, geeked out over around the water, which is a big issue, especially in, in, in the western part of the U.S., but we're just not going to be able to make it. But we have these three events and hundreds and hundreds of more. One if more, you, we have the uh, on October 17th, the Denver Energy Tech Showcase, uh, which I'll be there for. It's a whole bunch of uh, oil and gas-focused uh, startups, a whole bunch of uh, representatives from ENPs in the area. Um, we're expecting probably two to 300 people. Uh, it's going to be a good time. They're running out the entire uh, brewery. Uh, so drinks and food and tech and oil and gas, and it's going to be a good time. So if you're in the area and you want to come out and hang out, we'll be there. Yeah, and we're going to try to go to that just to support Jake. If if you've listened for any length of time, Jake is getting ready to do something really, really cool that he's done before uh, with a startup. Um, and it's not any startup. It could be the startup to kick butt of all startups. So uh, <laughs> if you get a chance, go out there, look, go support Jake because he's getting ready to do something just freaking awesome. So if you want more information about any of the events, sign up for Mark's uh, monthly email. He's not going to spam you. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. Um, you'll have that in your email every single month for anything that really moves uh, within oil and gas and we give away free passes of stuff that no people yeah. people don't know about um we have our first friday q a coming up if you'd like to submit your question if we use it on the air we you get a big shout out we're actually working on some giveaways for the people that submit questions so ask us anything just remember the intent is to educate not to try to stump jake and i um, but we welcome any questions you have out there let us know uh, go to the website oilandgasthisweek.com click on ask a question put your information in there and like i said we get a big shout out if we read your uh, your question on the air and then reviews, we need reviews. We haven't gotten any lately. Um, so please, 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 if you listen to the show and you like us, go to iTunes. It takes all of two minutes. Leave us a review. It helps us help your peers. Enough said. And then if you like this show and you're just start listening, welcome aboard. We love our new listeners. If you've been listening for a while, we appreciate that of, of all our listeners. We have two other shows. So we have Oil & Gas HSE, Oil & Gas Industry Leaders. You can Google them both. Or you can go to Oil & Gas Global Network, which is the home of all the podcasts, both these three and the future ones. We have several more coming out. We actually have at least two more coming out this year, and we have 10 more on the works. Um, if It's crazy. Um, if, if you're listening out there in your company and you would like to get in front of our podcast audience, we're looking for sponsors for several of our future podcasts. Um, reach out to me. I'd love to share the details. And if you don't want to spend any money, uh, reach out to me as well because we're accepting content on the Oil Gas Global Network website. So if you have a product or service and you, and you want to put together a short video, some audio, blog posts, whatever, talking about what you do, um, as long as it's not too salesy, as long as it's education, we'll let you put it up there for free, and that way you get exposed to our audience, um, which is something you couldn't do anyway. Uh, LinkedIn group, Oil Gas Global Network, go join if you haven't joined yet. That's easy enough. Um, if you haven't joined, you need to go do it. Uh, Jake, uh, Microsoft's making some changes in LinkedIn, and it's actually, I think, getting better. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I've been getting served content that was actually valuable. Like I actually read it. It wasn't spam. Whereas for the last okay. four okay. years, everything I was fed by LinkedIn was spam and it wasn't even worth my time even to read. Yeah. So, you know, hats off to Microsoft. We're actually talking to them about one of our future podcasts right now, but, but ever since they bought LinkedIn, they're making some changes and I'm starting to see it change for the better. I hope that trend continues. Um, uh, I guess that's about it. If you like the show, do us a favor, share it, do that uh, reply all to your, in your company's email and share with the entire organization. Uh, drop our <laughs> link in there. We'd really appreciate that. If you do that, send me a screenshot and we'll send you the one of a kind collectible on gas global network lapel pin that nobody can get. Um, is that about it, Jake? 
Yeah, that's about it, man. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.